Are you ready to get fired up? This is the Spitfire Podcast with your host, Lauren Lemunyan, the Spitfire Coach, a certified life and business coach out of Washington, D.C. We're talking to everyday people on the topics that burn them out and ignite their passion. So sit back, relax, and get ready to spit some fire. What's going on, guys? It's your host, Lauren Lemunyan, and I'm super excited that you have joined us for season two of the Spitfire podcast. Now, if you didn't catch any of the episodes in season one, fear not. They're available on our website at spitfirepodcast.com, or you can listen to them on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So head on over there, click the link, download it, subscribe, tell your friends, and enjoy the show going on spitfires welcome back to season two of the spitfire podcast we are back with one of our veteran our veteran guests of the Uh the uh, the podcast but now instead of me interviewing them they are guest co-hosts and today we are going all the way back to episode nine we're bringing back Ginny hill and she is gonna chat with me about how to not be fake at work yeah. That's right. You stop being fake, girl. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, episode nine, that was a really long time ago. It's it good to be so back. Long. I think the weather was similar though when we were recording. It was. I think it was snowing yeah. at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we like our cold weather, uh, wintry mix moments. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> we bring the fire. Yeah. So Ginny, what's, what's been going on with you since episode nine? I know we had our, our catch up, but you've had some some progressions in your life. Yeah, things have been really good. Um, Work-wise, at the nonprofit I work at, uh, I got promoted to senior manager. Um, That happened just recently. So that's been kind of a nice role to embrace and start the new year with a new role, new responsibilities, new salary. Um, It's just been really, really kind of a new beginning, I think, at work. Um, And I feel really empowered to do a lot of the things that I really love doing, most of which includes like facilitation and coaching. um, and I just got off of a long residential program this week. So I'm taking on more and more at work, which is really exciting. And then music-wise, which is something we love to talk about, mm-hmm. um, music-wise, um, my bands are still going really well. Um, kind of developing a new rhythm in terms of both the cover band and the original band and my acoustic project and open mic. So those are kind of the big so projects. you're super bored and looking I know, for I never to get to hang out and just watch the Great British Baking Show, which oh, is what I would love to be doing you could do that in later. my downtime. <laughs> yeah, that's what I do when I when I do find that rare downtime on the weekends. So a great show because it's like you you're never going to do what they do. So you just kind of go in the moment of like, yes, I'm a master baker right with you. Yeah. And even if they mess it up, they're still way better than I am. Yeah. So I'm still in awe of everything that they do. And they're also nice to each other. Yes. Um, they help each other. Yes. It's bizarre. Yeah. If that were in America, it would be like, you're going to go down and get eliminated. And yeah. And when they do get eliminated, they're not that upset about it. They totally embrace the failure and just say like thank you for having me and weird (laughs) many of them see it coming so they're like I knew it it's okay I've accepted it and they're just so mature about it I love it they are but I but I think when it comes to baking or anything that has science and like very precise measurements you know when you've succeeded and when it's a massive messy failure yeah I mean and they're not afraid to give them feedback about what they did wrong so Mm. That's helpful. We could loop this into our little discussion. I think today. that's going to apply here today. Yes. Yeah. Who who would have thought that the Great British Baking Show would become the foundation of our discussion today? It's a good metaphor. Yeah. It is. Well, we we were talking about this like a year ago, and and this has been something that you and I have chatted about of like this idea of not being fake at work. 
So where where is this idea brewing in your head right now? Yeah, well, with the topic of leadership development, um, no matter what industry you're in, um, it's always an interesting question to me. Like, how do you find success? How do you rise in the ladder if that's what you're looking to do? Or how do you take on a leadership role um, to grow your career? Mm -hmm. Um, A big part of that is authenticity. So now that word is so overused. And that's why I kind of like our our spin on it, which is how to be less fake. (laughs) Because uh, yeah, authenticity sounds like this dream that I have that I will someday, you know, be an authentic leader. It's like Nirvana, right? Yeah. And, um, and so therefore it's not, it's kind of lost a little bit of its meaning. Mm -hmm. I think the opposite of it is like a fake leader, someone who's kind of wearing a mask, uh, putting on a show, uh, got a point to prove. Um, and so an authentic, and that's the opposite of an authentic leader. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's kind of interesting maybe to think about it, not so black or white, like I'm either authentic or I'm fake, but thinking about it on a continuum. Um, and so for us today, you know, I'm kind of interested to talk with you about how to move yourself a little bit closer to authenticity on that continuum. Not that it's ever all or nothing, uh, but moving ourselves a little bit away from the fakeness, the two-facedness that we can sometimes see Mm -hmm. when we're at work, um, and moving towards being more authentic, more real with each other. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. So after we we were talking about this, I started seeing this show up more and more in my coaching sessions, which typically happens because once you're aware of it, you see it everywhere. And I realized that as I was working with individuals on an executive level, um, this company is 100% flat. So there's no home office. Everyone works from home. um, And they don't have that face-to-face way of kind of seeing where they are. They don't know, like, where the the boundaries are, where the structure is. And so the amount of stress of trying to decode that picks up. And the tie-in with that is they feel like they have to play a role in order to be seen as a valued employee, as someone who's productive, as someone who has leadership potential. And so what they end up doing is acting out of who they are, and it becomes this chase of who am I supposed to be and who am I actually, and they start to have conflict. Yep. And I was like, well, who are you really? Like, who are you outside of work? And what do you love to do? So this is all part of like the master thing, but we can talk about like the growth and the progression of like, what are your leadership skills? And then also what's the backlash when you aren't yourself at work? Yeah, I think there are consequences to that. You know, people read a lot of different leadership books or they see admired leaders in action. Mm-hmm. And there's kind of an inherent belief that, well, I need to be more like that. Yes. Um, and I do think it's helpful to look at admired leaders, whether it's people you know personally, like in your chain of command uh, that impress you, or someone um, who maybe is um, in a more global leadership role, like in politics or uh, leading a company that you that you admire. I think it's okay to point to the things that make Make those folks successful that you admire in them mm-hmm. realizing and balancing that with you don't have to be them you don't yeah. have to be exactly like them and you will never be and them. you never will be so that's like also <laughs> a bit of realism yeah. too and all and and realizing okay there's some best practices or characteristics that I can pull out from why I think that they're successful why I admire them and then I need to figure out my own path and how I'm gonna manifest those characteristics And it's a very personal reflection instead of an imitation of Mm. that other leader. So it sounds more like be inspired, don't try to imitate. Yeah. Um, Another phrase that I love um, and use a lot with my leadership programs is be yourself with more skill. Hey. Um, and and that I'm sure that comes from a Harvard Business Review article somewhere. But the idea is uh, you can still be yourself, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, right? Sometimes we always think 
leaders are extroverted. That's not the case. You can lead whether you're introverted, extroverted, or somewhere in the middle. Um, but you can bring to bear your skills. Mm -hmm. And that also kind of points to the importance of like continuous learning. Um, that it's not like you can just use self-awareness as an excuse, right? Like be yourself, just be who you are. It's that and learn as much as you can, gain as many skills and abilities as you can, practice Mm -hmm. uh, so you get really good at it, and bring bring those both to the table, both your authentic self as well as your skills, Mm -hmm. and that's the perfect match. Yeah, totally. So it's, it's the understanding what you're walking to the table with and then understanding what game plan you need to do in order to really sharpen your skills or expand mm-hmm. your expertise or, or your network. Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to like knowing what you bring to the table, that really speaks to self-awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, and we always start leadership programs with self-awareness because... Which is so hard to do at work, by the way. It is, yeah. I mean, well, and I think nowadays the good news is that most people have realized that emotional intelligence is the norm. It is the thing that kind of sets leaders apart. Mm -hmm. We don't often remember um, leaders because they were technically expert Mm -hmm. or because they were super duper smart. Those characteristics are important, but what we often remember are people that are leaders that were honest, Mm -hmm. loyal, they communicated well, they instilled trust in you and others, they supported the team, they cared about you. Those are all, by the way, interpersonal skills that speak to emotional intelligence. So we always start with self-awareness. And so that's a big piece is knowing what are my strengths. Mm -hmm. I think it's okay to know what your quote unquote weaknesses are, or if we wanna put it more delicately, your areas for development. So if you know those, that's great. Um, And there's different schools of thought about what to do about those things. Many people say leverage your strengths and and bring those to the table, know what those are, and kind of find positions and opportunities that that fit that, fit your strengths. Others would say, well, look for your weaknesses and fill in the gap, right? So Mm -hmm. if I am bad at public speaking, that's a a really good one because a lot of people are afraid of public speaking. So what should I do about that? Should I just never publicly speak because it's not a strength? Yeah. Or is that something that I should spend time and energy on? Mm -hmm. So that's an age-old question, and the experts don't agree on it. I think it's a personal choice, and and like everything you're going to hear me say, it's probably a both and. Yeah, I don't think there's only one way to do anything. Right. And and usually the experts who are giving those pieces of very like opinionated one way advices or at what is, what is advices. advice advices? What is like the plural advice? Advice is plural. I'm gonna cut that out because I just sound like a ding dong. <laughs> um, the people who are giving the advice have their own bias that's attached to it. See, I was attaching bias with advice. Ah. So it's advices. That's the new word. I'm sticking with it now. <laughs> yeah. So there's a bias on the advice based on the experience that they've had. So I think you have to do what feels right for you. So if you know that you want to have a more visible presence public speaking is going to be a big part of that. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's all about what's your end game. Like what's the big goal that you're going after. And if it's not, if it doesn't fit in, then delegate away. Or if it's something that you need, that's really your Achilles heel, spend some time with it. Right. And I think, uh, another thing to remember is that you can make small steps and small successes. Mm -hmm. So don't go from being afraid of public speaking to trying to give a Ted talk or a keynote in front of hundreds of people. Ain't going to go well. (laughs) Lead a team meeting, right? Start by facilitating a team meeting or start by giving a five minute status update at your larger divisions, Mm -hmm. 
meeting, uh, you know, the monthly meeting or something like that. Um, pick safe situations or shorter spurts um, where you can practice these things um, and then find ways to get feedback. So speaking of our Great British Baking Show analogy, um, really getting that feedback so you know what you did well and also what you can work on. Yeah. There's the both and, right? I think it's really important to ask people what you do well yeah. um, and not just what went wrong? How can I fix it? Yeah, because the people that are closest to you are not going to give you honest feedback because they don't want to hurt your feelings. Yeah. But the ones – you also have to be ready to get the feedback. And I think this is the big thing is, like, we want to be perfect. Like, nobody wants to be told that they're not good enough, that they weren't great. And I think that this ties into this reluctance of showing up as yourself because it's a very raw spot. If you show up as a role, if you show up as this version of yourself, then you can blame it on, well, that's just who I am at work. Yeah. And outside of work, I'm totally different. But if you step in and you're that same person, then it's it's this very like exposed place of like, yes, give it to me right now. Yeah, it's a vulnerable place, right? So, and that's that speaks right to the word authenticity. If I'm going to be authentic, I have to show you who I am. That includes what I do well and my strengths and my awesomeness, but it also includes where I'm kind of not that great. My, you know, my rough spots and uh, things that I am working on. It humanizes people for sure. I think that's what also worries people, though, is that if I kind of show too much humanizing, mm-hmm. uh, am I showing you my weaknesses? I think it. Uh, in the clients that I've worked with, you know, it's daunting because people fear that that's going to be used to manipulate them. Yeah. Um, if you're in kind of a toxic work environment, maybe that fear is real, um, and so maybe you're worried about like if I share my motivational style, you know, that could be used against me. To me, when a client expresses that type of concern, I think, wow, they're in a toxic work environment. Certainly they could have their guard up and it could be just them, but likely it's a product of the environment and they've kind of been taught that it's not okay to show those weaknesses. Yeah. And honestly, I wouldn't show anything if you're in that. That's where the bubble comes in where you got to get the hell out of there. Yeah, sure. I agree with that. I mean, if you're not in a place that supports who you are and and what you want to be doing and you're noticing that you have to walk on eggshells, you cannot be yourself at work, that is a big red flag. Yeah. And and I think that we people need to first start with is this a situation of you? Is this your environment? Is this the social players that are in the system and working? Is it a safe place? Because what you don't want to do is like show up, hey, here I am. I'm I'm going to be vulnerable and then like it's like attack mode. Because people do see that as you're trying to get attention. Um that's not how we do it here you know, why are you so sensitive? All of these things. And that's your, that's your key. And if you've seen this show up in any conversations with higher ups or supervisors or in any like water cooler talk, you don't need to share that. Right. Yeah, that's fair. Um, so then another, you know, thing that this, I think might be on the minds of of the listeners too, is well, okay, so I need to, I need to develop self-awareness. How do I do that? Um, I really believe that a key part of this is getting to know yourself. Yeah. Um, so I know a lot of people joke about like the Myers-Briggs these days because now everyone's taken it like three times. But the Myers-Briggs or other personality assessments, they're there for a reason. Um, they actually can teach you a lot about yourself and how you differ from others. That does two things. It raises self-awareness, but it also, uh, so you can get to know yourself and your tendencies, your preferences, but it also um, helps you get to know others. 
And you could see like, oh, that's why I get so frustrated with people, you know, because they're actually operating from a completely different preference or a completely different style. So it really opens up your uh, awareness and curiosity, not only about yourself, but around of the people around you. The good thing about that is you can become curious. I think that's a really um, helpful part of being less fake as well is um, being curious about other people. Mm-hmm. So that takes a little bit of the spotlight away from, I need to be the best. I need to be on top of my game. It's all about me, me, me. And it kind of opens up one's mind to be thinking about other people. Yeah. So um, the more concerned I am about my ego, how I look, my position, my success, you're going to get very caught up in... um, in a very selfish mindset. If I can move towards being curious about others, it's a way less selfish mindset. Um, And if I'm doing that out of genuine interest, if I'm cultivating curiosity about other people, Mm -hmm. um, I'm also gonna be able to use that to build relationships with other people. Mm -hmm. And we all know in in this day and age, um, because we're not, many of us are not working in factories making widgets anymore, we're knowledge workers. Um, and we work based on motivation and relationships. So for that reason, like being curious and developing uh, strong working relationships with people around us has a huge benefit. Yeah, totally. I want to go back to the, the Myers-Briggs. Because, oh, yeah. <laughs> because I am certified in this. Me too. And I have had um, pushback, and I also have had that internal pushback on it. Because what I've seen happen with that and other personality assessments is that people use it as an excuse of I am this way and therefore this is how it will always be. Mm -hmm. So I love that you highlighted the curiosity because it's okay this is why there may be conflict this is why we might work better together but your personality type is not your pass to just you know say this is how I'm always going to be. So it's the foundation of your personality, but these are then the interpersonal skills that you can add on to your arsenal to bridge the gap in the differences, to understand how to build relationships and to work with people who have different personality types and styles. Exactly. I like to say that self-awareness is not an excuse for poor performance. No, it's not an excuse Um, to be an asshole either. Definitely not. (laughs) I've definitely worked with somebody in my former job who said, literally said, you know, I'm just not a details person. So I'm just not (laughs) going to concern myself with the details. I'm really sorry I missed your deadline. It's just not my thing. So no, that's not okay. Um, Just because you know you're not a details person doesn't mean you just need to continue on uh, missing deadlines and having typos in your reports. Like that's not okay. The question there is, so so then, you know, going back to what we talked about at the very beginning, Okay, I know that details are not a strength. I have other strengths. Okay, I could try to capitalize on those strengths. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to details, there's just certain practical things I have to make sure I do at work, which yeah. includes like having typo-free deliverables and meeting deadlines. Or make sure someone's there to check your work. Exactly. These are strategies you can add on. But so I've, I've heard it so many times. Well, I'm an ENTJ, so that's just how I am. And I was like, I want to vomit right yeah. now. And that's why actually, like, I offer it in my coaching packages, but I don't want people to, like, get locked into this is how I am. Yeah. You start to stereotype yourself. You I do. think some people, they don't want to even take the personality assessment to begin with because they don't want to be put in a box. Other people take it, and then they put, they themselves, put themselves in the box. box yes. And you're like, no, no, no. You know, it's meant to... Um, and I know many of the theories, uh, especially for Myers-Briggs, is that it's innate. It mm-hmm. doesn't change. Um, though... 
I might push back against that. Sorry, Carl Young, you know, if you're listening. No, just kidding. Uh, but, he a little dead. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, in, with apologies to the theory, um, I do think that as you get older, especially, you can cultivate other preferences. So for me, mm-hmm. I come out as a strong extrovert every single time. Um, as I've gotten older though, I've much more appreciated Mm -hmm. like solo time to recharge and, you know, I've found mindfulness and meditation and I find that to be really, really helpful for someone like me who is always being social and has a very busy mind. You know, that quiet time actually balances me out a little bit. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really what people find in their experience. Um, so it's not that my inherent preference has changed, but I think you can cultivate the other side. Oh, for sure. And speaking of curiosity, I think a lot of that comes back to curiosity. People start, you know, as we get older and more developed, we think, well, what's going on with that other side over there? Like, why is that introversion so appealing? Uh, and so for me, I've kind of found that and, and I'm sure that introverts might say the same about extroversion. Mm -hmm. Um, maybe it becomes a little more intriguing or doable as you grow. Yeah. Well, and that's why I love this. I don't know if you've done the step two um, portion of Myers-Briggs, but it, it goes over the five facets of each of the dichotomies of those letters. So it can see where you're in preference and out of preference. So that's where people sometimes feel conflicted of, well, I'm, I feel more like this letter and not like this letter. So why is this showing up? Um, it's not an exact science. This is the thing. It's like, do not use this as your holy grail of like behaviors yes. and actions and communication style. It's meant as a recommendation to use as a tool among other things that you can learn yeah. as a grown ass adult. Right. So I would, you know, keep that report if you've taken it, right? Or or do plan on taking something like like the Myers Briggs or another one I really love is the strength deployment inventory that speaks to motivation and conflict. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. Not to know just your modus operandi, but also your modus operandi when stuff hits the fan. Yeah. Um, so how do you basically react under stress? Totally. Um, because that's actually what trips up a lot of leaders. Mm-hmm. When things are going peachy keen, Everybody's we happy. all get along. <laughs> and we can be like, oh, I appreciate our differences. But when conflict hits, that's when kind of people's real true colors show. Um, and if we haven't practiced or given thought to our stress response, we could burn some bridges. We could tick people off. Um and, and we can burn out. Yeah. And I mean, this is actually just back to our theme of authenticity, right? So it would be very easy to say, well, this just is just how I am when I'm stressed. Um, mm-hmm. You know, again, kind of using self-awareness as an excuse. I've been guilty of doing yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, and that, <laughs> that happens. This is not an all or nothing thing. I do think we could work on, though, being aware of what triggers us yep. so that we can either avoid or mitigate those things or we could kind of see them coming and we can then plan ahead mm-hmm. for how am I going to de-stress so that the stress doesn't just compile, compile, compile. Um, stress is a part of our daily life. It's a part of um, our work. Mm-hmm. We can't avoid it. It's really all about how you deal with it. And I don't think stress should be avoided because stress for a lot of people is a catalyst if you know what to do with it in a positive way. Yes. But stress is usually that flag of pay attention to whatever it is. Otherwise, your body would not be having that type of reaction. Your body is the best asset and tool you have to figure out what's right and wrong. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, And so if you can know what those things are that really stress you out, trigger you, you can work with the stress uh, instead of 
denying it. So yeah. back to my back to my man Carl Jung, he actually said what you resist persists. Absolutely. So if we're resisting stress, avoiding it, you know, dodging and weaving to avoid stress, like you said, it's really not a good thing. It'll come back and smack you in the face. Oh yeah. What you resist persists. It'll find you. Well, and this is what I say to my clients. So um, I've had a couple clients who have left long-term careers. And I said, all right, give yourself some time to process before you go into another situation. And the ones that rush into their next opportunity, guess what? Those same problems are right with them because they haven't taken the time to understand their role in attracting that mess, their their response to the mess, and then the active player part of recreating it. Yeah. And even if it's a different company, different coworkers, different location, maybe you get up and move, maybe you have a new spouse or partner, you're still the same person. You just now have this imprint of how things are always going to go and you expect it and you actually are like subconsciously recreating it. Yeah. I mean, speaking of spouse or partner, the advice you just talked about for work actually goes for relationships Hail too. To the, yeah. yeah, taking that time in between processing, reflecting. That's where the real work is done. Um, especially when it comes to being less fake because if I want to get to know myself, what's important to me, I really have to spend time with myself. Mm -hmm. We used personality um, assessments as an example, but it also could just be something so simple like journaling, Mm -hmm. like solo travel, um, like a self-care activity and and practicing that often that I really like. You know, some people run, some people do yoga, um, whatever the self-care activity might be, um, just making that a priority and a part of my life so that I know that I myself am a priority to yeah. me. Um, and, and then you therefore build in that time to process, reflect, and take care of myself. And to not distract yourself. Right. It's not meant to be a distraction, though I think it has like maybe a side benefit of that because you're focused. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's not the primary purpose to distract. It's it's actually to maybe embrace and confront. Sit in your shit. Yeah. (laughs) Seriously. I have learned to love sitting in my shit. Like that sounds gross, but I get... Nobody pull that out as a soundbite. Yeah, <laughs> I love sitting in my shit. No, but we were, I was talking about it with our last podcast guest. I love to feel the bottom, like when I've hit that like uh, moment of like, okay, I don't like this, but what is this about? Like what, what decisions did I make? What was my mindset and my mentality that got me here? And what do I want to create? And it's really hard for people when they're in an enhanced stressful situation where they're afraid they're going to get fired, where they've been playing this role at work of like being this perfect, smiley, happy-go-lucky person, and they're boiling under the surface. Like that's the bottom. Like people are like, oh, well, you know, I'm fine. I can pay my mortgage and, you know, I'm married and my kids are happy. But how happy are you? Like, are you happy on paper? And, and you know, I've talked about this of, you know, our past married lives and things like that of going through the motions. That can be your actual bottom. Yeah. And that could be the shit that you are just existing in, but you're not like a happy pig. You're just mucking through it. Yep. I, yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, so, you know, it kind of begs the question of like, what, you know, how long do I need to sit there Yeah, and how uncomfortable is, is okay. Right. And you get to determine the length of time. You get to determine that. I think in terms of, um, like a trick with, with mindfulness, one thing that that tends to happen is like our survival instinct sometimes kicks in at at that rock bottom place or at that uncomfortable place um and we think 
our, stop, our worst case, yeah. yeah, our worst case scenario is thinking in our heads, I will be here forever. This is now my state of being. Oh my God, I'm here forever. Mm-hmm. And even if we don't think that consciously, you can kind of maybe think back to like a, a bad time that you've had recently and you can kind of remember, oh yeah, I definitely thought that I was going to be sad forever or lonely forever. And rejected every time. And I, yeah, no date I should ever go on is ever going to work or you know, no yeah. job is ever going to make me... We tend to worst case scenario in our heads and that's what makes the bottom feel so uncomfortable is because we think we're going to be there forever. Mm-hmm. If we can um, catch ourselves thinking that way and maybe and flip that on its head, realizing that every experience is temporary, mm-hmm. um, realizing that, you know, this is not where I'm going to be, just like every feeling, including happiness, it comes and goes, we can shorten that feeling of uncomfortableness and kind of move through it. Yeah, and so moving through it, and I think this is a great caption for people listening moving through it does not mean pushing it aside or ignoring it or trying to bottle it up it means feeling it out and understanding we're using the term processing so that might be like an abstract for you but processing it is being curious with it and asking yourself what am I learning from this what do I want to attract in what do I want to get out of this how am I showing up so that you're taking accountability yeah and I think that's what authenticity is, the realness, and the antithesis of being fake is you taking accountability for who you are, how you think, how you act, how you're showing up. Awesome. I couldn't agree more. I think the next step um, is to figure out how then I can share that with other people. So it's one thing to be able to sit in it, to be able to move through it, to personally uh, feel resilient in my own skin and feel like I can handle things and um, that I have my good, my bad, my ugly, and I'm okay with it. I think another kind of step to add on to this, especially for for ourselves at work, is... um, Thinking about how do I now convey my feelings, convey my thoughts to the people I work with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what ends up happening a lot at work is we tend to become people pleasers. Mm-hmm. We tend to sugarcoat things. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, it's the it's ye old phrase, pick your battles. Ugh. Um, and that actually, you know, I think that cliche is true. Works in some places, yeah. But my follow-up question is always, how do you pick? Yeah. How, how do you oh, know? Oh, cool. Pick your battles. Yeah, how do you pick? Because that's what people suck at. <laughs> yes. Is actually picking. And they We su- all know we should pick. And they suck at battling, too. Yeah, exactly. They're like, I'm yeah. picking my battle, but I don't like conflict. This right. feels icky. Mm-hmm. Nope. Or I'm having a tantrum, you know, because I'm so upset now because I've been bottling it up for so long, that's and now, now I fly off and the handle. And nobody's listening, and then you're the irrational person. So, you know, it's important to remember that honesty and kindness are not mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, when we're sharing how we feel, we can be honest about it and be kind and respectful. Yeah. Sometimes people hold in their feelings. They don't speak up when they have concerns um, because they're worried that if they're honest, they'll be punished. Mm -hmm. And that might be a real fear. I get that. You know, depending on your leadership, depending on the culture, that could be a real fear. I also think it might be like the 80-20 rule where um, in 20% of cases, it's a real fear that like there will be, you know, retribution. In 80% of the cases, it's internal constraints. It's us not feeling comfortable with our own feelings and being unsure or unskilled in how to share that. Yeah. Um, so, so we have to kind of 
get rid of those internal constraints and realize that um, I am able to share this. I can do so in a respectful and kind way. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't have to mean that if I pick a battle, I now lose a friendship or yeah. I lose credibility at work. Um, we can really do both. Um, and so one of my favorite uh, resources on this is Crucial Conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really common uh, book or training these days. So if um, our audience hasn't picked that up or read that or investigated that, I strongly recommend it because uh, it has a lot of tools in there about how to be both honest and kind. Yeah. Uh, and I think another pair that I like is um, being both confident and humble. Mm-hmm. Again, that's something we often think of as mutually exclusive, but you can be both confident in in your views, in your interpretation, in the battle you're going to pick, and humble to know that you might be wrong. You might be missing some information. Um, You're curious about what the other person has to share to kind of enlighten you. Mm -hmm. So you can be both of those things in the same conversation, uh, which again, really helps uh, to get rid of this need to be right uh, and embrace um, communicating mm-hmm. so that I can build a relationship with the other person. Yeah. I would also suggest that if if this is making you feel super uncomfortable right now, like even this idea of having these crucial conversations at work is to start with a small network of people that you feel comfortable trying this out with. Yes. So giving honest feedback, receiving honest feedback, and take those baby steps. So with my clients, I, I ask them, okay, what's one step out of your comfort zone on this? What's two steps out of your comfort zone? So you're constantly pushing, but maybe starting it at work is way too big of a leap for you. Sure, that could totally be. I mean, maybe it would be better to start with your sibling or your mom or dad. where or it's like your significant other. Or your significant <laughs> other. Um, one thing you can imagine is like a bell curve, right? Where 20% is at the bottom, the vast majority, 60% in the middle, 20% at the top. Um, if this is something that's very daunting to kind of own up to your feelings in a kind way, but but to have those important and difficult conversations um, authentically, um, start with the 60% in the middle or that 20% at the top, like the green zone as we call it. Mm-hmm. Do not start with the 20% at the bottom. Nope. The like toxic relationships that have a lot of baggage nope. uh, and you've, you haven't spoken up in a good long time. You know, those are going to be so much harder and you have a higher likelihood of kind of unleashing the floodgates where it's yeah. like, and by the way, five years ago you did this that really I'm bothered me. Mad. Okay, that's not, <laughs> yeah, I'm still mad. No, that's not really very effective. So if I can pick discrete incidents, um, or things that, you know, they kind of bother me now and I'd rather address them before they become worse. Mm-hmm. That 60% in the middle and then that 20% green zone relationship at the top, those are places to really start practicing the skills. Yeah. So a great way to do this is to kind of do a nice little surveillance on your on your landscape of relationships and think about where are those low-hanging fruit items? And then the ones that even just thinking about it are giving you like a little bit of a stress reaction and blood pressure raise, maybe let's wait on those. So you can actually create a strategy for yourself to enhance your communication skill. Exactly. I mean, it's like so many things in our lives. We need to practice them before we're good at it. Yeah. And, and we're probably I not going to be experts. No. <laughs> I mean, I would never go from like a couch potato to tr- signing up for an Iron Woman race. You know, <laughs> I would start with a 5K. I would then move no on to way. a 10K. I mean, we do this in so many other skills and abilities in our lives. We forget that it also applies to communication and to leadership. Yeah, but I think people 
expect because, well, they see someone else doing it, it looks so easy, I should be able to do it. But it really is a skill. And if you think of it as learning a new language, like you're not gonna be able to speak Japanese in the first day. So you gotta practice, you've gotta study yourself, you've gotta spend some time with yourself and how it's feeling and, and keep putting yourself out there and don't be afraid to screw up. Like right. you're still ahead of about 99% of the people on this planet. So just being aware, just practicing and, and checking in with yourself, you're still you're still in the progress winning field. Yeah, I totally agree. Just show up, people. Yeah. <laughs> the world is run by those who show up. It is. It is. And it's and it may feel uncomfortable for a long time. I have been a coach for three years and the last week I had to have several difficult conversations and it still made me really uncomfortable. Like it doesn't feel easy. No one loves it. I mean, that's why they're called difficult conversations. But they're Um, so needed. They're so needed. And you end up saving yourself some heartache. And anxiety. Um, Yeah. And they can be had well. Mm -hmm. Um, So so this, just linking it back to to authenticity and, and being less fake... Um, another phrase that I really like from the book is if you don't talk it out, you're going to act it out. Hell yeah. So don't think that you can just bottle things up forever. It's like a pressure cooker. The vent has to be opened somewhere. I mean, that's why we call it venting because what we're often doing is venting to people that are inappropriate. They are shit stirs. Right. And so we could be going to our colleagues um, and venting about other colleagues or You can or be the boss. creator of the toxicity. Yeah, you're the one stirring the pot in that case, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we could be uh, venting to our spouse and maybe not directly about work, but I come home and I'm like irritable. Yeah. And, right? So if you don't talk it out, you're going to act it out. And the other thing, so I had, a, I had a client who was going through this and he's like, yeah, I take it out at the gym. And I was like, are you taking it out at the gym? Like, because you're still pissed off. You're exhausting yourself physically, but the emotional stuff is still with you. So there are ways of, of, of decompressing, but you're not finishing it. So there's still residual baggage there. So there are multiple ways that you can take care of it as it manifests in your body. But if you're resisting the conversation, that is what you need to do most. Yeah. I mean, and, and some people, I think going to the gym is going to be enough. Yeah. Depending on the issue, right? Depending on like what they're grappling with. For the majority of people, though, like, you really still want to ask yourself, like, is this situation still having an impact on me? Yeah. Um, And so when we go back to that question of pick your battles, one of the best ways to decide a battle to pick is impact. Mm -hmm. Okay, so is this having an impact on me? Is this having an impact on the project? Is this going to have an impact on the organization or the mission? Um, I work in, in public sector, so I, I'm always thinking about mission and purpose, right? Mm-hmm. And many of the government clients I work with, they've got big missions to work on. Yeah. So it's not just about like the bottom line and sales and stuff like that. No offense to anyone who cares about that stuff. But also in the, in the public sector, you add not just fiscal responsibility, but a mission to the American people. Mm-hmm. And so if that's suffering, if, the, if there's an impact on the mission or the team or me personally, that's a great litmus test to say, this might be a battle I want to pick. Yeah, absolutely. And I think anything that's making you lose sleep or having a negative impact on your health or your relationships is worth the conversation. Yeah, I would say so. You're pretty damn important. You should take care of you. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, it's funny. So Justin was, when I was going through, we were talking about this incident that I had um, with a blip in my decision-making. And he asked me, can you push through it? And I said, I would never 
recommend that my clients push through anything that made them feel this awful. Why the hell would I say that to myself? I don't want to push through it. Mm. What's the alternative? The alternative is speaking up for myself and making an active decision that I want it to stop. Yeah. And it did because I stopped it. And I, I had to change my language multiple times and I used multiple sounding boards to get more clarity around the decision I was making. And I felt I hit send, I did a meditation and then I hit send, I had my finger on the enter button and then I was done. And I had a couple crazy phone calls after that, but I was so mellow and I just said, this is a me decision. Yeah, and if you're comfortable with it, that's honestly what has to happen at the end of the day. Um, I'm not advocating for like acting selfishly, which I definitely don't think oh, you I did. Love, I love selfishness. Oh, I know. Well, yeah, but I but not solely selfishly, right? Like it sounds like you really gave it some thought. Yeah, it wasn't like an impulsive. No, and it, decision. and it could have looked impulsive to people on the outside, but having the level of self awareness that I do. Any type of stress really impacts me. And when I don't see an end in sight and when I see other factors that are going to add to my misery, essentially, I was like, there's no price tag for that. There's nothing that gives permission for for an organization or an individual to have more value than I put on myself. Yeah, that's so true. Um, If you're comfortable with it, uh, that ends up kind of being the top priority. Absolutely. Where we see people being more on this fake side of the continuum where we can let fakeness win is if we're so concerned and if our top priority is what other people think. Absolutely. So we really want to be careful of that because if you're weighing others' opinions over your own, Mm -hmm. a couple things could be happening. Like, first of all, maybe it's that you don't trust yourself. Mm So we're, we're weighing their opinions, importance more because I don't really trust my own feelings. So I need, I need to like augment it with, mm-hmm. with other people. Um, so I think that's something that could be going on. The other thing is that, uh, we're trying to please others. So therefore their opinion matters more than my own. So mm-hmm. it's a self-sacrifice thing. Yeah. Um, some people kind of love doing that too. It's like a martyr syndrome, uh-huh. but I'm so concerned with, the opinion of my kids or of my of the other moms or dads at school or the teacher or uh, the people I work with. So we have to be able to, in your case, it sounds like you really worked on this and you paused and you made the right decision for yeah. yourself. The top priority, uh, and not in a selfish way, but the top priority needs to be what I think and what I'm comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I think there's... It, it all kind of relates to, is this an internal driver or is this an external chase? So are you waiting, are you weighing, or are you chasing the external validation from other people? And where do you come in on that priority list of, of value? Yep. Um, you can also look at like long-term and short-term impact. So just back to that, that litmus test about like in terms of how it affects your decision-making, how it affects your um, your flow. Um Maybe in the short term, you could have kept going with this project, right? Like maybe you could have self-sacrificed for like a little while. If you're honest with yourself, though, you're going to take a look at the short-term impact and then the long-term impact of sticking with something like this. And you're going to realize, no, 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 I'm not willing to do that. So you can kind of forecast impact as well and, and use that as a way to decide your next move. Because um, if you know that this is not sustainable for the long term, right? And some of us do this. We sign up for stuff. We say yes to things. And it, and we realize like partway through, we're like, this is not the good for me. Was that this thinking? is not good yeah. for me. Um, 
there is a point of honesty right there that you have to be honest with yourself about impact. How is this working out for me now? How is this going to work out for me three months from now, six months from now, a year from now? Mm-hmm. Um, and so impact kind of comes back again in terms of uh, a way to be honest with yourself about uh, what decisions you need to make, what priorities you need to maybe change. Yeah. And I think being real with yourself and saying, what's the best case scenario on this? What's the worst case scenario? And what's the realistic scenario on this? Because you may be thinking that the best case is going to happen, but it's about 70% away from the realistic view of what's actually happening. Yeah. um, I love that notion um, because I was just having this conversation last week at um, one of the leadership programs I manage. um, And we were talking about like the difference between uh, resilience and optimism mm-hmm. or delusion. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I love optimistic people. I, I fancy myself one, you know, and optimism is great and it has its time and place. Um, it's about like rooting for the future, right. And, yeah. and imagining a bright, uh, rosy future. I love that optimism is rooting for the future. Yeah. You're rooting for the, you're, <laughs> you have faith that things will work out. Um, and uh, that, you know, tomorrow will be even better than today, right? So that's like an optimistic view or the glass is half full is the mm-hmm. cliche. Um, resilience, though, is actually much more about a staunch look at reality, mm-hmm. um, being real, taking an honest, factual, rational assessment of reality, uh, not with rose-colored goggles on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's one of the key differences. Optimism kind of focuses on the future. Uh, realism and resilience uh, focus much more on the here and now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the presence yeah. of it, not the future hope of what could be. Yes, yeah, and they both have their time and place. Because uh, I'm definitely not dissing optimism. We definitely need it. Yeah. Probably need more yes, of it. Yes, we need a lot of it um, right now. But people get those two confused and they feel like, well, I'm not being optimistic if I uh, kind of acknowledge, you know, and again, if you're in a kind of a rough spot, if, you're, um, if your New Year's not starting off great, right, it's okay to be honest and real about that um, instead of pretending it's not there. Yeah. So being real with yourself, being real with the situation and making honest discussions, conversations about it to lock it in. Yeah. And remembering that kind of catchphrase about what you resist persists. It doesn't serve you to resist or deny what is really in front of you. If you're having a conflict, if you're not getting along with someone, if you're, uh, if you've got like a pit in your stomach saying like, I'm in the wrong job or I need a hobby, whatever it is, like being real with yourself, um, speaks to not resisting whatever's going on. Um, You're then able to kind of uh, surf with the tide Mm -hmm. instead of trying to swim upstream. Oh, it's it's force versus flow. You got to find your flow. And, And what I'm hearing is, you know, listen to your gut, listen to your body, because if you keep ignoring it, first it will whisper. Then it will talk, <laughs> then it will scream, and then it will paralyze you. So if you are someone who deals with chronic illness, stress is probably a pretty key part of that too. Oh, yeah. Especially if you're in an environment that is not working for you. So this is you putting yourself first and your health first by listening to what you actually need and yeah. the environment that you need to be in. Yeah, stress is a teacher. Hell mm-hmm. yeah. So we appreciate you. Like great wise teacher stress. <laughs> thank you, stress. Thank you, stress. See, if you can thank your fear and thank your stress, then it can it becomes part of your toolkit rather than as the evildoer that's right. trying to kill your life. Right. Rather than you wishing it away. Yes. Well, I I feel like we have tied this up with a nice pretty bow. So what is like your master nugget? 
that if people are feeling like, am I being perceived to be fake at work? What do I do? Yeah. So, um, master nugget, AKA, you know, closing tip, um, something to remember, uh, is that it really starts with feeling secure in oneself. Mm -hmm. So for me, this is something I've really worked on. I believe that if I can feel secure in myself, if I know that I have good intentions, if I feel in my heart that I am a good person, if I've spent time with myself to get to know me and who I am, I then feel safe showing up authentically. Um, I'm boiling boiling it down, of course, um, into like those simple aspects that it takes a lot of work, both of those things. But in in general, it starts with getting to know myself, spending time with myself, and knowing that I'm a good person at heart. Then, even if I get misinterpreted, because I'm not always going to get it right, I still know that I'm a good person and I meant well. Mm -hmm. So even if there's people that don't like me or um, things that don't work out the way I planned, I'm able to kind of roll with it and accept it better because I, I have been able to, and not 100%, but I have let go a lot of what other people think. Mm-hmm. I'm less worried about being judged by others, and I care more about my own judgment of myself. Mm. So when you're clear with you, you can be clearer with others and not be attached to the outcome. Yeah, I mean, and the outcome is going to be what it is, and mm-hmm. I have faith in myself that whatever the outcome is, I'll be able to roll with it. Uh, and then we talked too about just having a support system and having the right relationships and people around you um, because you can't do it all on your own. But um, I think it starts with kind of that security in oneself. Yeah. And that's where confidence comes from. Yeah. Yeah. Well, awesome. Thanks for joining me. And we did not have a fake podcast. No, we did. No fake news <laughs> on my fake podcast. Nope. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining me, Jenny Hill, and I hope you come back because we we love our guest co-hosts here. It makes the Spitfire podcast even more enjoyable to do, to produce, and to put out there. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate being here. Yeah. And for all the Spitfires out there, keep being awesome and stay tuned for our next amazing episode.